politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen to the one and only CR podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back here in the house today, Wednesday, November 17th. And like always, it's another great day to fight for liberty. The greatest fight for liberty is the right to live. The right to live unencumbered by a government that is killing us with a virus that is killing us by blocking treatment and is killing us with the supposed treatment of the virus. You know, we're going to have our broadcast, if you haven't heard it by now yet, 7 o'clock tonight or 8 o'clock p.m. tonight on The Blaze. I'm going to be on with Steve Days. Glenn Beck is anchoring, and we're going to have Dr. Ryan Cole on. We're going to give the full picture. It's all coming together in a very sickeningly satisfying way intellectually how everything they have done was designed to maximize not just the pain economically and the, so- and the social control and the fear, but also to ensure that the most people die from both the virus and the, their response to it at the same time, be it the lockdown, be it the shots, be it the remdesivir, be it the denial of treatment, and unfortunately, likely, we think in this next phase with the new drugs that they're going to come from Merck and Pfizer, particularly the Merck drug, very problematic, um, although the Pfizer drug... The more we find out about it, I'm sure it will be just like the more we find out about the shots. The more we find out about them, they really never worked. And they are killing so many more people than we could even imagine. Um, we're going to have a special guest on today. Very, very special guest on. It's funny. I'm, I'm trying to go back and forth between having so many good guests and then I have so much else to talk about that we don't get to. But it's kind of a balance. I know a lot of you love the guests, and I do as well. So we're going to get to that. Um, Today's show is sponsored by Patriot Mobile, the only Christian conservative, uh, pro-American, pro-family mobile provider. Uh, You know, the thing about Patriot Mobile, it's one of the few areas of just major goods and services that you actually have an alternative. I mean, most of them, it's like, yeah, what are you going to pick, Pfizer or Merck? Um, but here they have the broadest nationwide coverage, the same uh, towers, the major carriers. Um, plus, they actually have a 100% U.S.-based customer service, which is really nice because uh, half the time you can't understand these other call centers. So they share your, your values. They actually help organizations fight for religious freedom, the Constitution, sanctity of life, veterans, and first responders. Go to patriotmobile.com CR or call 972-PATRIOT. Get free activation with offer code CR. First responders and veterans get discounts. Again, patriotmobile.com slash CR, patriotmobile.com slash CR, or call 972-PATRIOT. So we have a lot to get to before we bring on our guest. Um, You know, Idaho. Idaho, uh, we have a special session going on there. We have a special session in Florida. Do you know that Idaho's motto is Esto Perpetua? It is perpetuated. I think the origin was that, you know, we're just asking for God's bounty to bless us forever. But instead, what we have is the imperial administrative state and federal executive control over our bodies, property, and health care in perpetuity. This is a problem in every state. The chairman of the Health and Welfare Committee, and this is true pretty much in every red state, he is such a leftist, Fred Wood. 
he blocked nine bills and refused to even hold a hearing on them. He's like, shut up, no problem. I profoundly disagree with all of them. If you don't like that, that, that company and its policy, go work elsewhere. I have the right not to be infected by somebody that has a communicable disease. So everyone says, went crazy when Biden basically insinuated that it's somehow the unvaccinated could harm the vaccinated because they didn't get the protection that the vaccinated already got, which didn't work, but somehow it will work if they get it. I'm here to tell you, every major leadership figure, be it a governor, be it a committee chairman, be it a majority leader in almost every Republican supermajority state, they share that same view of Joe Biden. I am not exaggerating. This is true everywhere. They share his view. They might be nebulously pro-gun and pro-life, but on the issues that matter, when they matter, and in the way they matter, they fully share the views of Joe Biden. This is what we have everywhere. Now, they did pass some other bills, you know, and and even then, like, for example, they have, I want to say, a 58 to 12 majority in the House in Idaho. Yet, they still passed this bill, but 16 Republicans voted with the Democrats to oppose HB 429, which allowed parents to opt out of the school mask. It wasn't even like Florida, what Florida is doing, a complete ban, cause of action. Here, it, it allows it, but individual parents get to opt out. 16 Republicans, including Wood, the chairman, the House Education Committee chairman, Lance Clow, and the House Speaker, Speaker Scott Bedke, who is running for lieutenant governor, he needs to be defeated. Unbelievable. Another bill, HB 414, passed. Um, which prevents employers from questioning sincerely held religious beliefs. We're seeing this a lot. It did pass, but also some liberal Republicans, including Chairman Wood, voted against it. You now have a bunch of states that are approving approving the booster shots for all adults, even before the feds. So it's funny. We can't find a single state to green light and promote ivermectin and other stuff before the feds are against the feds, but somehow this is okay. And you know what the states they include? Arkansas and West Virginia, Asa Hutchinson and Jim Justice. So after the first idolatry doesn't work, let's have another one of last year's flu shot, with, which never worked, except the side effects are much worse than the flu shot. There's a reason why states seem to be able to push back against the feds when they want or jump out ahead of them, and that's because both parties agree with it. I don't want to hear these excuses, oh, a state, it's limited what they can do. It's not true. If you had a real opposition party, they could do everything. Because you see, when they want to do something, they do it. So I just wanted you guys to to see that. Um, more broadly, and, and man, there's, there's so much to go on, go into, but the nursing homes are failing. People are dying. So basically it's not even a false dichotomy between getting dangerous shots and being locked down, atrophying versus dying from COVID. No, they're atrophying them, locking them down, giving them dangerous shots, giving them boosters of the dangerous shot that's killing God knows how many from the spike protein. And then they still get the virus and still die from it. NBC Connecticut reports, 
89 people were infected, and out of them, eight died. And it looks like about 20 of them still haven't recovered, so there might be more fatalities. Very high death rate. 87 out of 89 were fully vaccinated. And by the way, that includes staff. So I would venture to guess that among the residents, probably all of them were vaccinated. That's a pretty doggone high death rate. So clearly, there's zero efficacy. So they're locking them down. They're not allowing them to see uh, you know, parent, uh, children and, and relatives and saying you better get more booster shots. But for the people that it was supposed to help, it doesn't help. Now we know that's in plain sight. How many people the shot itself is killing, they're covering up, like we talked about yesterday, and unfortunately, we're, we're never going to know that. Came out that Pfizer and Moderna are earning a combined $65,000 per minute on something that kills more people than it helps. Alex Berenson, I mean, that guy deserves a Pulitzer Prize. We should create like an equivalent for that, the the work that he's done over the last year and a half from day one. And he he noted something very important. One of the most important measures in any trial done on vaccines is all-cause mortality. How many people died over a given period of time? I don't want to hear about COVID because that's kind of, it's hard hard to track. All-cause. A lot of people forget that on the main Pfizer trial, they did a six-month follow-up, right? They posted it online. I believe it was July 28th. Follow up on the safety efficacy. Six months. If you want to Google Pfizer six months safety efficacy, and you see it straight up. A lot of you might have seen it. A lot of people have forgotten. They have all cause mortality. Fifteen people died in the trial group, and fourteen in the placebo. So technically, one less died in the placebo. Now they claim that two died of COVID in the placebo and one in the trial. Now that that in itself is a joke because only two. So that's nebulous. Um, but, and, and, and the numbers are too low to make any determination, but all-cause mortality is really the more accurate thing because it might have a degree of efficacy for some people short-term against critical illness, maybe. But the question is, is that very minor benefit outweighed by all of the mortality that it causes from the side effects, not to mention the mortality from COVID by creating vaccine-mediated viral immune escape, viral enhancement, and making more people die altogether, making the virus worse. And we have so many alternatives that could work much better, um, from the monoclonals to you know nitazoxide, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, all the vitamins and supplements, you know, um, the betadine nasal spray, pepsid, aspirin, Black seed oil, turmeric, fluvoxamine, you know, the right dose and the right steroids at the right time, androgen blockers. We're going to be talking about that with our next guest. But what Alex Berenson found further is that on November 8th, FDA published what's called a summary basis for regulatory action, basically explaining why they approved, but really didn't approve Pfizer, approved Comirnaty. 
And they say this sentence on page 23, from dose one through the March 13th, 2021 data cutoff, right? Because it was only through March 13th, by the way. They never studied deaths beyond that. So we don't even know. There were a total of 38 deaths. Not 29, like Pfizer said, 15 and 14, 21 in the community vaccine group and 17 in the placebo group. That means there were there were nine more deaths than they were willing to own up to. Six more in the vaccinated group and three more in the placebo group. So now the spread is even worse, 21 to 17. Now, again, the numbers are still low, but that's, I, I can't do the math there. What is that, like 25% greater death rate? I mean, straight up their own data. I don't know if Pfizer was lying. Even their own data is bad. But this update, if they're lying or it's a data backlogged that FDA now published, whatever it is, more people died in the vaccine group. Okay? So their own data shows there is no evidence that it ever helps. This is really the greatest measure. And it demonstrates that if we actually had pharmacosurveillance properly on the country, you'd probably see that. So I wanted to get that out before we get to our guests, just because there's so much to get to. Um, Today's show is also sponsored by Convention of the States. Folks, you guys know that there is no proper solution to fixing the country in Washington. It's got to come from the states. We got to get state legislators together. We got to make state legislators grit again. My buddy Mark Meckler, longtime friend of mine, he started the Tea Party, um, and he has the best patriots at Convention of the States. Uh, they, they're already well on their way to getting a bunch of states in. Mark Levin, Steve Days, Governor Ron DeSantis all support it as well as, as myself. I am an endorser of Convention of the States. If you go to conventionofstates.com slash Horowitz today, sign the petition to demand the state legislators vote yes um, on the Convention of States. And that way you could be together with some of the best grassroots activists ever again. That's conventionofstates.com slash Horowitz. By the way, a Florida judge just said today he listed seven reasons why the vaccine mandate makes no sense. He went through all of it. So that's a good sign. We might talk about that soon. Um, Just trying to clear all the decks from stuff that we might not have a a chance to get to. CDC now is claiming that immunocompromised people will need a fourth dose. A fourth dose. The problem is there's no evidence that any of this works. No evidence any of this works. So every time we inject them, particularly those people, remember, if you're more vulnerable to the virus, you're also more vulnerable to um, to the shots. And, and, and yet there's no Republican that's speaking to this. No state. We have to beg and maybe get a little of some crumbs. This thing should be banned. This thing is poison. But in the meantime, they're blocking all treatments. All treatments. You know, I, I, w- I was just speaking with a bunch of doctors today. Nitazoxanide. That's N-I-T-A-Z-O-X-I-N-I-D-E. I'm not looking at it in front of me, so it's hard to spell in my brain. Nitazoxanide. It actually is likely safer than ivermectin and perhaps more effective. Broad-spectrum antiviral. 
Um, but the problem is, I mean, this thing is two bucks in Brazil, but it's now $1,000 in America. You can't get it except at seven cells. So by the way, just an update. Again, that's S-E-V-E-N-C-E-L-L-S, seven cells pharmacy in Florida. Coupon Daniel gives you 20% off. With 20% off, you can get 10 nitazoxanide pills. So that's enough for a course of treatment for one person for 160 bucks plus the consultation fee. I know it's a lot, but you can't, I mean, you can't get it elsewhere. Um, ivermectin is down for for until Friday. Um, there was, believe it or not, a cyber attack on their website. Unbelievable. Um, and they were able to, so as they attacked the, the ivermectin page, they were able to save the rest of it. So nitazoxanide is still up. It's unbelievable. Um, so they're going after it because it's been so successful. Um, so again, you could wait till Friday and ivermectin will be back up. They're ramping up their production. Um, anyone who has not gotten it now, you, you need this. I mean, they're creating so many more viruses, so much stuff. But again, they they prescribe in all 50 states. Um, nitazoxanide is even safer. So even if you're on Coumadin, they will give you nitazoxanide. Um it's going to be a $35 fee now for the consultation. $160 per 10 pills of nitazoxanide. 20 pills will be double that. Ivermectin, again, is going to be you know $8 a pill, but those pills are going to be bigger. They're going to be pegged to your weight, not the three uh, milligram ones. So yeah, I mean, you are going to have to wind up spending a few hundred dollars for your COVID kits, but that's life. I mean, I don't see a better way out of that. So again, 7cells.com, uh, offer code Daniel. If you want to be nice and and uh, forego the 20% off for yourself and have it used for charity for our doctors to get nitazoxanide for their patients, um, you can put in offer code HOPE, H-O-P-E. So that is with 7cells.com. But yeah, it's unbelievable. Nitazoxanide is, is, I mean, I'd have it on hand for the flu, for RSV. It could be given to kids, young kids. It is sick that we are not following up on research on that. Again, NIH's own website. They say remdesivir is poison, liver toxicity, uh, renal failure, contraindications, and ivermectin and nitazoxanide are generally, generally well tolerated. It's disgusting. And yet, Fauci is now pushing boosters. He's saying, I think we can get the virus under control if we have boosters. That's worse than Lucy in the football. Really? We're to believe that? And by the way, another thing I don't have time to get into now, but if you Google it, they found vials of smallpox in Philadelphia literally three days after um, Bill Gates talked about a smallpox plague. This is creepy because if you look back, and we're going to talk about this tonight on our broadcast with Glenn Beck and Steve Dace, if you look back on the last 10 to 20 years, they the very people who are behind uh, the gain-of-function research, all the vaccines, all the treatments, all the you know lockdowns and social distancing, they were warning about a coronavirus plague. So I would take them seriously because they likely would know. They would know. <laughs> believe, believe me, they would know. They're really good at this game. So that's definitely something to um, to, to look into, and we're, we're going to be looking into that in the coming days. We're going to be looking into also, um, you know, again, Merck and Pfizer's new drugs and how they compare to uh, to the therapeutics we know that work. 
But what we need to do is get you um get you treatment, and that leads into our next guest. So as an introduction to our guest, I wanted to spotlight this story we referenced yesterday in Florida with this teacher who was denied ivermectin. Obviously, we have the story in a Houston hospital where they tied a cloth around the feeding tube to make sure that the wife couldn't use it. And in this case, this from USA Today, a Florida teacher drew national attention for trying to get a hospital to administer her ivermectin, died from her symptoms on Friday. Tamara Drock, 47, uh, died just 12 weeks after being admitted to Palm Beach Gardens Medical Center for treatment. Her husband had sued to get her that treatment, and now the husband is calling for a law to be named after her. Well, I know of a great governor in that state, and the legislative uh, legislature is in session. Well, now is their time. This is an emergency. How do we not have right-to-try legislation? We're not even asking, God forbid, that they should use this as their protocol instead of remdesivir, um, but at, the, at a very minimum, that at their own cost, at their own liability, they should be allowed to do this. It is shocking to me how we cannot get a single bill, a single bill. I don't believe we have one. Um, it was taken out of the North Dakota bill. So this is something we're definitely going to be pushing. But but today our guest is really very well suited to talk about this because he's probably dealt with this more than anyone else around. Dr. Paul Merrick um, is one of the major COVID doctors that we have not had on the show yet, but it's better late than ever. He's chief of intensive care unit at Centara Norfolk General Hospital. He's also a professor of internal medicine. He's the author of more than 500 peer-reviewed journal articles on critical care medicine. Um, he's written a number of papers on treatment of COVID as well. He's really the most published critical care physician in the country, and he is more well-known to many of you recently as the co-founder of the FLCCC, along with Dr. Corey and other doctors. Um, some of you see him on their Wednesday night uh, podcast every, every week, and he now has a lawsuit against his employer because they are not allowing treatment of what is essentially anything that has shown efficacy to work. And if you look at the protocols they are using, it's essentially everything that not only doesn't work, but either has an FDA black box warning for uh, blood clots or remdesivir, which you're well acquainted with. It's almost a punchline at this point. Doesn't work, cannot work at that stage, at the inflammatory stage, but can only cause problems, heart, uh, um, liver problems, kidney problems. And what is so salient about this lawsuit and about what's going on there is it's not just Sintara uh, Medical Systems in Virginia, but this is really happening everywhere in the country, even the world. And it's time we finally air this out. I believe it needs to be aired out in the legislature, but at a minimum, at least we now have a lawsuit with us to talk about this and more is none other than Dr. Paul Merrick himself. Dr. Merrick, thanks so much for joining Blaze Media today. Thanks. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks uh, for inviting me. Just one correction is that I actually work for the medical school, but not the hospital. I'm contracted by the hospital, but I am the director of their ICU. Um, first point. The other thing is is, you know, a lo the local press and the press have made this an issue about ivermectin. This is a much broader issue. The hospital banned ivermectin last June. Essentially, what they're doing now is they're telling the physician, the bedside physician, how to practice medicine. So they are interfering with the sacred 
patient-physician relationship. It's physicians, you know, I've been doing this 35 years. It's the physician who assesses the patient and decides on the best route of treatment. And this is what is done throughout the entire world. What they are doing is unprecedented. They're telling me, the physician, what I can and cannot prescribe. It just so happens the drugs they want me to prescribe for COVID is remdesivir. And as you said, this is a drug which prolongs hospital stay, does not improve outcome, and is toxic. Yet the drugs that we want to use, or I have been using up until now, are safe, effective drugs that have been proven in randomized controlled trials to decrease the risk of dying of COVID. So this is an absolute... So to be clear, to, to be clear, you're saying this is not just about ivermectin. You know, ivermectin is one drug, and maybe you could get people to believe, oh, there's something wrong with that somehow. But it's anything, everything and anything that is cheap, cheap off-patent, not being pushed by the big pharma... Uh, medical establishment that stands to benefit a lot from from these expensive drugs. Um, anything? Could you give somewhat of a list of what what are, what are those banned drugs that you have found uh, to show some efficacy? Yeah. So, so you know, obviously they want me to use remdesivir, which, besides the fact that it's ineffective, it costs three thousand dollars a shot, and the hospital gets a bonus. The drugs that I'm, I, we've been using are very cheap and effective. So, you know, we can talk about fluvoxamine, and I mentioned fluvoxamine first. It's a very interesting drug. It's a very potent anti-inflammatory drug. And, and the main issue when patients get to hospital is inflammation. It's an antiplatelet drug, an anti-serotonin drug. So it has multiple modes of action. So they claim that, and fluvoxamine is on the list, that there's no randomized controlled data to support its efficacy, which obviously is a lie because there was a study in JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association, one of the most prestigious journals, demonstrating the benefit of fluvoxamine. More recently, there was a large randomized controlled trial published in Lancet, again, demonstrating reduced mortality with fluvoxamine. And even more recently, a randomized controlled trial in ICU patients, in ICU patients demonstrating wow. a dramatic reduction in mortality. So it's an absurd notion that they have. And this drug is, you know, supported by at least three randomized controlled trials and other observational studies. There's good um, methodological or basic science data to support its use. It's safe. It's effective. And then the other drugs that we use are anti-androgen therapy. And this came about, it's kind of interesting, and your, your readers may not know this. So it was first noted in Italy that old men had a higher risk of dying than men with lots of hair. And this was related to androgenic baldness. It was then shown that women with polycystic disease who have high androgen levels had a higher risk of dying. It was then shown that men who take finasteride for prostatic hypertrophy, finasteride is an anti-androgen, had a much better outcome. So the, there were studies done in mice which showed exactly the same. If you, you know, cut out their ovary or their testis, it changes the outcome. 
And then we did a study showing that men have a worse outcome than women, are much likely to be admitted to the ICU and to die. And we showed the reason was that they had much higher levels of inflammatory proteins. So consequently, there have been a whole host of randomized controlled trials. So let me say, this is not just some whim. These are randomized controlled trials demonstrating that anti-androgen therapy in both men and in women significantly reduce the, de- the risk of dying. And they've banned me using these safe drugs. So, for example, you know, dutasteride, which is an anti-androgen, is used in women for hair loss. It's used in women for hair loss for up to two years with absolutely a perfect side effect profile. So again, these are drugs which and it's also been... about ten dollars on GoodRx. <laughs> I just looked it up. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so you can see that these are these are cheap repurposed drugs that have been proven. It's not it's this is not we're not inventing this. This is not snake oil medicine. This is the highest level of scientific data. And I'm being prohibited from using these drugs. And so, so I now, think could you talk yeah. I think this is sure, go you on. know this is an issue about repurposed drugs, again, you know, against expensive big pharma drugs. That's what this is all about. You know, big pharma and their collaborators do not like the idea that cheap repurposed drugs could be effective for any disease, never mind COVID. And so we've been using repurposed drugs for, for, for many years. The FDA prior to COVID actually promoted the use of off-label drugs. And in fact, 40% of drugs used in the ICU are used off-label. And it's perfectly legal. You don't need informed consent. And it's regarded as a standard of care. Suddenly with COVID, suddenly with COVID, the, the world has turned upside down and you now can't use safe repurposed drugs. So you have people dying in the ICUs with with no um, no recourse. I'm assuming they have a better method, right? I mean, they're saying your stuff doesn't work. So what are they saying does work? So what they're saying works is remdesivir and low-dose dexamethasone, six milligrams of dexamethasone, <laughs> which we know is a homeopathic dose of corticosteroid. It's such a fundamental principle in medicine. First, you've got to understand the disease to treat the disease. And then you adjust your therapy according to severity of illness. This is not rocket science. So six milligrams may be fine for people who have very mild disease. But the patients we see are very, very sick, and you need to use a much higher dose. And unfortunately, most of the world is blind, and they just don't get this. And they use remdesivir and low-dose dexamethasone. And I'm sorry to say it's an outrage. It's led to the death of hundreds of thousands of patients. So what's important about the steroid is that so remdesivir doesn't work and likely has issues. You have the Olumiant uh, brands there that they use that have the black box warning, and there's not really much efficacy going on there. And then the, uh, the only other thing they use, which is legitimate critical steroids, is dexameth- dexamethasone that seems to be the wrong dose at the wrong time and the wrong type. So, you know, you already said the wrong dose. I would argue it's the wrong—I mean, 
it's not that it's the wrong time, but really it should be used earlier when you have someone outpatient where, where their, their sats are kind of starting to drop in the 90s and you want to make sure they don't crash and the doctor you know won't give them prednisone or methylpred or anything. But also, could you explain just for our audience why in your IMATH protocol, the FLCCC protocol that you've developed with Dr. Corey, why that you believe methylprednisolone is better than dexamethasone? Yeah, so that's a good question, and there, there are multiple reasons. I mean, so this is not just a whim. So firstly, you know, Dr. Umberto Maduri, who's the world expert on corticosteroids and critical illness. Let me say that. He's the world expert. He was the one that basically told us, hey, you guys need to use methylprednisolone, and you need to use it early. We started using methylprednisolone in March and April last year at a time that the WHO, the NIH, the CDC said do not use steroids. Now, the reason methylprednisolone is the drug of choice is firstly from a pharmacological point of view is we know definitively that methylprednisolone penetrates much better into the lung than dexamethasone. So it achieves a much higher concentration in the lung so therefore, you can achieve a much better effect without the side effects of steroids. It's basic pharmacology. Any basic um, physician should understand pharmacology so that methylprednisolone penetrates much better into the lung. Secondly, we have genomic data looking at the change of gene expression with SARS-CoV-2, and we know the drug that reverses those genetic changes, genomic changes, without question, the most effective is methylprednisolone. And then we have clinical data showing much better outcome in patients who are treated with methylprednisolone than dexamethasone. But it seems like doctors around the world are completely blind. They can't see what's right in front of them. And it's frustrating because, you know, methylprednisolone is the drug of choice. Um, the reason they used dexamethasone was because the study was done in the UK. Um, these, were these were studies done mainly by cardiologists. And dexamethasone was the main corticosteroid that they had available. So it's what they used. Um, but it clearly is, is an inferior drug. Wow. So right there, I mean, a lot of people haven't heard about that. It's not even about hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. Just right there, there's one study from well over a year ago. Um, we now know the dose is wrong. The type of corticosteroid is wrong. And, you know, we shouldn't be waiting until people are in the ICU anyway. They should be really be using that. Um, maybe not out of the gate. You know, you want don't want to suppress the immune system, but certainly outpatient when you start seeing a little bit dropping. I know uh, the doctors I work with, they uh, at least prescribe prednisone you know, outpatient, and that, that makes a world of a difference, and the, the topical steroids like budesonide. But one of the things that I was shocked about on the list that you published there when you showed the letter from, from Centara, um, they banned you from using vitamin C infusions? Yes. Yeah. How, how could someone oppose that? So they don't like me. So this, this was a personal. This was targeting me because they know I'm, you know, I'm the one that popularized the use of vitamin C. So this was directly targeted at me. Vitamin C is very safe. In fact, I've just read two randomized controlled trials. Let me say it again. 
two randomized controlled trials using vitamin C showing an improvement in outcome. So it is outrageous, um, but obviously, you know, it's a cheap repurposed drug. They don't like that. And I think this attack is, is a personal attack. I mean, it's, it's completely childish. It makes no sense, but it's costing patients their lives. It certainly is. Uh, Dr. Eric Henson, he's a head neck surgeon in East Texas. So he's been on this program. He's told me he's had people show up at his office. He's a specialist. He doesn't even do this, but people found out that he treats and he does it for free. It's unbelievable. Um, People would show up on five liters of oxygen, their blood oxygen level dipped into the 70s. And he's gotten them, you know, on vitamin C infusions, among other things. And that certainly works wonders. So this is this is across the board. So could you explain to us a little bit, you know, if you have rough data or just a rough observations, um, outpatient early treatment, we found the FLCC eye mask protocol really works. I don't know a single person who's done that early and has had a problem with the with virus. But everyone seems to agree that once you allow this to progress, you get the cytokine storm, um, and there's issues now, and, and then especially if they progress the ICU, that the options are kind of limited. And that that's that's what I always, um, the impression I got, that we don't really have many good options. But you, you're, you're right up there on, on the website, seem to indicate that certainly there's no silver bullet, and it's not as much of a sure thing as early treatment. But you're saying that this combination of androgen blockers along with ivermectin, although you were barred from using that for a while anyway, um, as well as better you know, targeted high-dose steroids and vitamin C infusion, some other drugs, you're getting a better mortal- or, or a more favorable mortality rate. Is, um, could you just explain some of the data you have? Yes. I mean, you ask or you raise some important questions. I think it's important for people to know that this is a serious disease and you need to treat it early. You know, the NIH's attitude is once you diagnose, you go home, you stay there until you can't breathe and you go blue. That is absolutely medical malpractice. It's really important to treat these people early. And the same happens when people who have shortness of breath because um, what people don't recognize, it's not the virus that's killing the patient. It's the patient's inflammatory immune response, which goes out of control. And the longer you wait to treat this disease, the more difficult it is to treat. It's like a fire. If it's a little small fire, you can put it out. But once it's a massive forest fire that's engulfing the you know, thousands of acres, it becomes almost impossible to put out. So timing is absolutely critical. And the problem is that many of the patients that come to the ICU are inadequately treated on the floor with remdesivir and dexamethasone. Um, We know from the early New York experience where they just did nothing. You know, the initial treatment was symptomatic care. The mortality was 88%. So we now know with our combination of therapy, you know, we can get that mortality down. You know, while it's difficult to know exactly because the data is somewhat difficult, you know, we can get it down the ICU mortality, maybe 40%. Probably the best data comes from Dr. Joseph Veron in Houston because, you know, he's the, the chief medical officer of his hospital. He has control. Every single patient in his hospital gets math plus. 
And while the overall hospital mortality across the world, so the mortality, hospital mortality in the US and Europe is about 21%. His hospital mortality is 7%. So I think it shows pretty convincingly that if you do this early and aggressively, you can save a lot of people. Now, obviously, what we're saying is it doesn't save everybody, but I think it's related to timing. If patients are treated early, and I think this is the key, you know, if patients become symptomatic and they're treated early, the, the risk of dying is exceedingly low. The problem is, is once you delay and delay and delay, this fire gets out of control and can be difficult to control. But, you know, even when the patient comes to the ICU, you can't just stand there and do nothing. You know, clinicians always do. That's their moral and ethical and Hippocratic duty to do whatever they can to save the patient's life. You can't just stand there and do nothing. And so the patients I see now in the ICU are patients who've, who failed remdesivir and dexamethasone. They've failed it. They come to the ICU because they failed that treatment. And it's not rocket science to figure out you've got to do something different. If what you're doing has failed, you have to do something different. And I'm being prohibited from adding any other therapy. So basically, I have to stand by and watch these poor people die because I'm not allowed to add adjunctive therapy, which I'm not saying will cure all the patients, but has a good chance of saving some of them. And have you seen a difference since these regulations went in place? Yes. So the last time I rounded, I had seven COVID patients. Up to today, I checked six are dead. Six are dead. And the remaining seventh patient is in a terrible condition and will probably die. So I have never seen this before. So, you know, patients do die when they come late. But I had, you know, two or three patients presented pretty early. One was in her 30s, the other was in the 40s, and I'm sure I could have made a difference, but I was prohibited from intervening. Um, interesting question here. Have you ever checked vitamin D levels in the ICU? So you ask a good question. I was part of a little study which actually looked at vitamin D levels and vitamin C levels, and they are exceedingly low. Uh, both in, you know, in symptomatic patients and ICU patients. So, you know, you get to an important issue is that vitamin C and D are such cheap drugs. And, you know, uh, the elderly, the people in long-term care facilities are the most vulnerable. These people don't go out. They have a poor diet. They don't see sunshine. It's an outrage that we do not supplement every single person in an these long-term facilities yep. with vitamin D and vitamin C. And, and and especially the active form D, where potentially you can get there, you know, you get it into their bloodstream, bypass the liver. I believe there was a study out of Spain or a few others that they gave them calcidophile on the active form D uh, upon admission to the hospital, and none of the ones in the calcidophile group proceeded to the ICU um, because to me, that sounds like you get their D levels up immediately, which you can't do with D3, but you know, you should be, if you're taking it long term, you could, 
Uh, but then it shuts off the cytokine storm. It, yeah. I, I, so, so I'm assuming that's another thing you can't do either in the hospital. So, that, so I can't get cal- calcifidile as far as I know. It, it, it hasn't been banned yet, but I'm sure if I started mm-hmm. trying to uh, order it, uh, <laughs> they, they, they would ban it. But what you say is true. So, you know, for general people, or, or what about calcitriol? That, that's on your protocol. Yes. So, um, you know, they haven't banned it yet. I'm not sure if they know about it. I think if I started trying to use it because it is more expensive, you know, they would add it to the list. You know, what you say is true because it takes about two weeks to activate vitamin D. So for people for general prophylaxis, regular vitamin D is fine. But when you're acutely ill in the hospital or ICU, you need to use the active forms of, of vitamin D. The problem it's is... criminal. So... so- here's what I want you to paint a picture for our audience. You've spent your career in ICUs, critical care. So, you know, we're tiptoeing around and saying you can't even use D, C, off-patent drugs that people take their whole life with no problems, you know, some like hair loss, drugs like that. You can't use it. Get, paint a picture of how we typically behave in terms of protocols when it comes to other ailments or other injuries that present in the ICU in terms of how deep in terms of the risk of drugs we're willing to run to, to try to save a life. Yeah, I mean, so this is completely unprecedented. Um, you know, up until COVID, doctors would do whatever they could, use whatever medications they could to save a patient's life. That's just what we did. There was never a restriction on um, what you can do. And in fact, such a prohibition doesn't exist for any other disease that I know of. Uh, it's, it's completely bizarre. Somehow it seems that COVID has turned the world upside down and people have just lost their, mm-hmm. their, their sense, of, you know, common sense, you know, because in ICU, these people are very sick and we do whatever we can to save their life. And we've got pretty good at doing that. Um, however, now, you know, they've decided that they should tell me how to treat a patient and how I shouldn't manage a patient. It's completely absurd. And and what, what again, what bothers me is, so, you know, outpatient, there's this perception, and I'm not going to get into that now, we don't have time, but there's this perception that the vaccines work very well, even though, you know, the data has kind of changed on that. So that's what they hang their hat on. But when you're in the ICU, it's self-evident whether they're a patient that had the vaccine, didn't have it, it doesn't matter. At that point, clearly the they got the virus and the virus did its full damage, so it's not like they have an alternative. So what what do they tell you, the hospital staff, other doctors, they're totally okay with the current death rate? Like that's kind of the price of doing business? I mean, so you say some important things. So firstly, we don't discriminate whether you're vaccinated or not. You know, we treat people exactly the same. And that's the way it should be. Um, somehow my colleagues just turn a blind eye. They seem to accept what. You know, people die from COVID, so be it. Um, Many of doctors are just afraid to stand up to this complete absurdity, which it is absurdity. I think if they they reviewed the data and they actually opened their eyes, they would realize that this is, you know, this goes against, you know, the basic physician-patient relationship and one's Hippocratic 
duty, one's moral and ethical duty to the patient to do the best you can. Let me ask you this. One of the things I've always been intrigued about um, is it seems like there's two types of critical care patients that I've noticed. There's the type that crash right away. I mean, their the blood oxygen level drops, 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 and then they die almost a few days late after being admitted to the ER. But then you have um, like this case I just talked about from Florida where people are on a vent. So they, they crash and they get put on a vent. But then they don't die. They, they're kind of stable for weeks and even months. They don't get better, but they don't get worse. What, 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 what's the pathophysiology behind that? Yeah, so you're absolutely correct. So the basic problem with COVID is not the virus. It's the cell in the lung called the macrophage, which gets turned on and makes these inflammatory mediators. Now, that's why treatment early is important to to calm down these macrophages. What happens with time, and we know exactly what happens, is the disease progresses. So you have inflammation, but as the inflammation, so the inflammation may be just overwhelming and the patient dies. But if that's not controlled, what happens is you get you get fibrosis, which is lung damage. So what is really happening is if this inflammatory process is not controlled, it progresses to the point that you get lung scarring and lung mm. damage. And once you get to that phase, you, it's irreversible. The, so the tragedy is you have these people who have lung failure alone who stuck on ventilators and they have no way of getting off the ventilator. And they stay on the ventilator till they die. It is a miserable and awful death. So that's why one needs to treat them early to prevent this progressive lung injury. And we know exactly how the disease progresses. So you have the inflammatory phase. And as the inflammation progresses, you get more solid lung. And then you get damage to the lung with lung scarring. And once the lung is scarred, unfortunately, there's no turning back. So that's why... You know, when patients come to the ICU, we want to treat them aggressively upfront to prevent them progressing to this chronic fibrotic scarred lung state. Because once they're there, unfortunately, there's nothing that can be done. Well, so does that have a lot to? So I should say, does that have a lot to do with um, the dichotomy we're seeing? Uh, again, I mean, ivermectin seems pretty solid early on. Later on, it's definitely better than most other things we've seen, but it's obviously the efficacy goes down. It, 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 is What you're saying, is that have to do with the fact that there are people we've seen that were on a ventilator for a few weeks. Um, you give them ivermectin and right away you could reduce the flow and eventually they come off it and then survive. And whereas there are other people, it's just they're, they're goners. I mean, it's just nothing's going to work. Yeah, so you ask a good question. So that's why, you know, when people ask me, I say what you need to do is you need to do a CAT scan because the CAT scan is very useful in distinguishing ongoing inflammation from lung destruction. So even at two or three weeks, if you still see a lot of inflammation on the lung, then they, you know, I do recommend corticosteroids and ivermectin because it is still reversible. So so it's, it's a very important point that you make, and I don't think doctors understand this. So even yes. if you... Even, three, even I could get that. 
Yeah, it's not it's not a difficult concept. You know, we we know very easily on the CAT scan, we can tell is this inflammation predominantly or is this damaged lung? And that's very important. Um, you know, I got an email from someone yesterday asking me that question. I said, you need to get a CAT scan because that is the best way of predicting what kind of treatment. And so, you know, we're getting to the issue of personalized medicine. You know, every patient is different. I've never had two patients that are the same. So the idea of having a protocol which you apply to every single patient is a complete, is bizarre and just not the way we practice medicine. It has to be individualized according to each and every patient. Yeah. So, you know, the, the dose of steroid, as I said up front, it's based on the particular patient. It has to be individualized. Exactly. So what what gives me the creeps is how many people in this country are currently on ventilators where they don't have the fibrosis yet? You don't have sepsis or multi-organ failure. It's just that the, the SATs can't be brought under control and they still have that inflammation. That's what really scares me. That's what keeps me up at night. How many of those people right now, if you gave them ivermectin and several other anti-inflammatories, you know, it could likely reverse that, shut off the cytokine storm, and more or less they'll go back to normal um, versus, you know, obviously those that are unfortunately, you know, beyond repair and, you know, nothing could bring people back to life or bring an organ back that 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 failed. So that's a really important distinction. I'm glad we brought that up. Um, yeah. so final front, front, it, yeah. It's really a critical issue, and I think it goes to the, the point that, you know, we 18 months, nearly two years into this pandemic, and it seems like most treating doctors do not understand this disease, which is an absolute travesty because you have to understand the disease to treat the disease. Yeah. Otherwise, you, 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 you're in the complete darkness. And I think, unfortunately, many physicians treating these patients are, are, have their eyes closed. Are you seeing a lot of kidney failure in the ICU among COVID patients? Yes. So one of the problems is with COVID is kidney failure. And there are a number of reasons why they develop kidney failure. A part of this may be excess release of serotonin. So that's why we advocate using an anti-serotonin drug. And indeed, the hospital is questioning why I use an anti-serotonin drug, because you know we think it may play a role in the renal failure. Obviously, there's also you know drug to toxicity, remdesivir, and other drugs that are toxic to the kidney. So kidney failure is one of the commonest second organs to fail in COVID. Mm. So unfortunately, it's hard to decipher how much of that is the virus and how much of it is the remdesivir. Yeah, I mean, it becomes difficult to, to figure it out. But, you know, uh, obviously, they get renal failure. And like, you know, any disease, you want to do whatever you can to prevent it happening, to treat it early, to prevent patients developing progressive kidney failure. So I just want to end off with this point. You know, you spoke about from a practitioner, a clinician standpoint, um, but you're dealing with families and real people. And I want to bring this back to the lawsuit itself as we close the show. Um, are you, how is it like interacting with the families going through this ordeal? And are they supporting the lawsuit? Are, are you getting families involved as well, just from their perspective? 
Yeah, so that's a difficult question. So one of the problems with COVID, as you know, is families aren't allowed into the hospital ICU. So it's one of the, the issues that make treating these patients just so difficult because usually families are part of the treatment team. We speak to them, we advise them, we have these discussions. So unfortunately, families have no idea what's going on. They completely left out. And, you know, in this situation, they don't know that there are alternative therapies. Um, so it, it becomes a very difficult situation. And clearly, at this point, I can't tell them that there's an alternative therapy, but I'm banned from using it. So, you know, it puts me in a really difficult situation. But I know there are families across the U.S. and the world who ask for, you know, escalation of therapy or additional therapy and the hospital declines. Wow, this is very sobering. I guess the answer to all this, obviously, is to try to avoid it at all costs by treating it early. Um, Dr. Merrick, what is your best assessment um, about the current iteration of the virus seem to get more aggressive, go to the pulmonary phase quicker, uh, more aggressive viral re replication. Um, it caught a lot of people by surprise, July, August, but it's been a couple months now treating this. Um, what what do you find are the all-stars kind of holding up even against this iteration? Um, I know you're more critical care, but from what you're seeing early on, what, what sort of things are still working? Yeah, so that's a good question. There's no question that Delta replicates to much higher concentrations and consequently patients get sicker early and they get much more severe lung inflammation. So again, it makes the requirement to treat them early even more critical. So um, it's, it's really imperative that with this variant, patients are treated early. But, you know, despite the fact we, we still think that ivermectin um, Fluvoxamine, um, anti-androgen, these drugs still have a role, but timing is just so critically important. You know, there's no data that the virus has become resistant to ivermectin or nitazoxanide or fluvoxamine or any of the adjunctive therapies. Got it. So these are all things, I mean, people really need to be able to access this as soon as possible, especially if they haven't had the virus yet. Um, Dr. Merrick, keep us updated on this lawsuit. Uh, good, luck, good luck with the proceedings and continue to save lives. Uh, you know, as frustrating as it is where you sit personally in the hospital, I could tell you through the work you've done with your organization, man, it saved it saved thousands of people across the world. Everyone now knows from your website, it's really the only uh, standard that has um, rivaled the NIH's alternative, which is nothing until you turn blue. So, yeah. uh, you know, as frustrating as your work in the hospital it is, you're certainly leaving a wide wake and long coattails outpatient, and that's really where it needs to be solved. So thanks so much for joining us today. Man, it's just, it's just depressing. Like, as, as little as I know about medicine, it, it maddens me more than anything in my entire life. And I get pretty worked up about policy issues uh, just to know that you have uh, a way of dealing with the virus in your hand and it's being blocked. I certainly couldn't imagine being an ICU doctor and, and watching the death in front of you 
senseless, senseless. I mean, we know the reason why they're doing it, but no reason. They have nothing to offer them but the stuff that likely makes it worse and refuse a vitamin C. Could you imagine that? I mean, what what, what, is, what does that tell you? But, I mean, Merrick's been a stud, um, and that's why, again, I will tell you, anyone you know, whether they had the shot or didn't, if they have not gotten this virus, you want as many things in your kit, as many things that we have proven to, to have uh, antiviral qualities in general, anti-inflammatory qualities in general, all this stuff, go to the FLCC's list of stuff and and try to get as much of it as you can because again my concern is they're going to continue to make this virus worse the more they play around with half-baked um vaccines and therapeutics and is this the tip of the iceberg is there more coming um so you really need you, you got to protect yourself this is bio warfare that they're launching against us it's disgusting and we're going to talk about that again tonight. Um, find us on Blaze TV if you're not a subscriber. Shame on you. Uh, much better than watching Fox or Newsmax. We'll see you tonight, 8 p.m. Tomorrow we'll be back, same time, same place. God bless you all, and thank you for listening.